even with most, most games, I'll play soundtrack music in the background. Gladiator or some kind of war themes in the background just to kind of set that kind of atmosphere so that way people who I'm playing with realize, yep, he's going to win. I just kind of set that tone. I love strategy. It's part of the way I think. I also love to strategize even with life, even with people. Yes, as I've gotten to know you, I'm strategic with who you are, whereas I watch as part of my job, my position at this church as the lead pastor to see who you are, what are your gifts, what kind of place are you at with the Lord, and I want to push you on and find strategy to get you closer to know God. And if you're part of our church, what part of the body are you? And part of my strategy is fitting you in and just trying to design and equip the church to do good works for the kingdom of God. That's how I work. I love strategy. I love this chapter because this chapter has a lot of strategy. This chapter, the Lord does mighty things. And this morning what I want to do is we're going to look at Exodus 14 again. And we're going to look at it with military insight and strategy. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about two aspects that I want you to think about. The first aspect is we're going to look at the kind of the chronological sequence, the events that happen in this chapter and part of chapter 13. We're going to look chronologically at these events and what happens. But also we're going to look at the rules of battle priorities. And there's a few rules we see in battle that we find out of this chapter. So we're going to look at the sequence of events and then the rules. But not every rule will match up with the sequence. Sequence, chronologically, we're going to go through, but the rules will be kind of staggered, as you'll see. This passage is unbelievable. Let me pray before we dig in. Father God, I thank you that you are so ever-present and you listen. And Lord, we ask today that you would move within our hearts. Spirit of God, do your work. And I thank you that we have your word so ready in our hands. And I pray that you would move us, show us who you are more and more. Guide my words, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 13, starting with verse 17. And what I want to do is, let's put up on the screen here the first part here. The first event is this, God's setup. God is all about orchestrating, getting things set up for His purpose. That is the first part. So we'll see that God orchestrates. He's all about setting something up. And there's a rule that goes with this. Rule number two. Not rule number one, but rule number two. God is sovereign. He's in control. Look at me. Rules are important. And when you look at these rules, remember these. Etch these into your memory. Get them down. Because these pertain to life. And we'll see that. What's rule number two? God is in control. And we'll see this in Scripture. Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. Listen. The shortest route is not always the best route. Remember that. 
Some of you probably know that through life experience. The shortest route is not always the best route. There's so many times I want to take shortcuts, whether it's with, with whatever it is, finances, family, raising children, doing your daily duties in life, the shortcut is sometimes not the best route. Though that way was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. If you don't believe that, remember last week's sermon. They had spiritual what? Amnesia. How quickly they forget, and we'll see that again. God knew they were going to forget. So he's like, I'm going to direct them this way because I'm in control. I'm going to set this up so they don't forget, and still they forget. Spiritual amnesia led to what? Spiritual suicide. God knows. Verse 18. So God led the people around by the desert toward road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. God's setup. God's planning sets up not only the children of Israel, but also their enemies. Let's look at... Uh, let's, go, let's go to verse verse. Of 14. Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Piharath, between Magol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land, confused, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and we have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him he took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of egypt with officers over all of them the lord hardened the heart of pharaoh the king of egypt so that he pursued the israelites who were marching out boldly the egyptians all of pharaoh's horses and chariots horsemen troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Piharath, opposite of Baal Zephon. Take a look at this. Here are the children of Israel. We are free. The Passover has come. We finally get to be free. They march out boldly. They're excited. They're like, we are finally liberated from being slaves. As they go, God is all about setting it up. He guides them to a longer route than they anticipated. He directs them, but he's also about setting up and leading the Egyptians into a trap for God's ultimate final military victory. God knows what's best for his people. The shortest way is not always the best way. But military theory doesn't really fit with what the Lord is doing. 
I have a book on my shelf. It's one of my favorite books. I say that about a lot of books. It's, by, it's called On War by Karl von Clausewitz. Anybody ever hear of that book? Wow. I'm going to hang out a little bit with us and uh, the Cargus family. This is, there, there are two famous books on military theory. One is The Art of War. Have you heard of that one? Well, you've heard of that one, okay. That's the, the, um, the Asian, the Eastern mindset of how to do war and military stuff. The Western mindset is this, On War by von Clausewitz. And it's interesting if you do military theory, when these two, when the Eastern and the Western try to fight, it just doesn't work. Look at Vietnam. Look at how sometimes... Because we have a way of thinking about military, but their concept of military is very different than ours, and we don't understand why they give in. This is what it says in the first part of this book. If we want to overthrow our opponent, we must proportion our efforts to his power of resistance. Whatever, they, whatever their level of resistance is, we need to get our power to match that and meet that and go over that, right? That makes sense. This power is expressed as a product of two inseparable factors. How do you determine if an army can win? Two things. Listen to this. Number one, the extent of the means at their disposal. How many guns do they have compared to this group, right? You come over to my house and play Risk with me, you'll see me build up all my armies and powers compared to your three, and you just look and go, that guy's going to win right? We have more nukes than they do, so we're going to win. That's a very Western mindset. We have more power. We have more means at our disposal. We're the richest country. We are going to win. But that's only one aspect of battle. The extent of the means at his disposal and, listen to this part, the strength of his will. Think of Vietnam. We had the means... But did we have the will? The strength and all that's at your disposal, but also the will, the hope, the purpose of what you're engaged in. And it's very interesting, as we look at this passage, the Israelites have none of that. That's what they think. They have nothing at their disposal. We'll take a look at verse 18 of chapter 13, it says, So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. So you may, if you have an NIV, you may say, Oh, they've got all the weapons. That must mean when Pharaoh let them go, he said, All right, each of you get a spear as you go. Oh, here's a couple chariots. That, that, that didn't happen. He didn't give them, All right, uh, you're the Cargus family. Uh, you get the M1 Garands. Oh, you're the Grubs. Okay, you get uh, M4s. That fits you guys. Uh, you guys want bazookas. Oh, you want a Barrett 50? Okay, we'll give you one of those. No, it wasn't like that. They left hurley. They, they quickly got out and just took off. So, really, the NIV doesn't portray that. The best way to see this is maybe the way the NASB says they weren't armed and ready, they were in a military fashion a military array, or like the NLT says, like a marching army. They were in formation, getting out. But they did not have the means at their disposal. They didn't have the weapons. So when this other army is coming with chariots, listen to these words, horses, officers, all this, they had the military might to overthrow them. The Israelites think 
They have nothing. The will, first is the means at their disposal. Second is the will, the unction, the hope to fight. Well, we see here soon, they just throw up their hands. They're terrified. They quickly get what? Spiritual amnesia. That doesn't help in a battle. They think they have nothing to fight with. And guess what? They don't. They have nothing at their disposal. And here's what I love the Lord is all about setting up. God is all about setting up our lives, directing it to show us we cannot do it. It's hard for us to say as Americans because all I'm about, we're doing it. One of my favorite movies is called Ghost in the Darkness. No, it's not a scary horror movie by Stephen King. It's, it's kind of based off of a story about two lions in Africa. Two lions in Savo are, are killing all these people, and the British are down there to build this bridge across this river system to get the train going. And these lions are killing everyone, and the American is down there. To, oh, no, it's the British guy. He says, I'll, I'll, no, he's an American guy. That's right. The American guy says the British guy says, you know what? I'll sort this out. I'll do this in the morning. We'll take care of this in the morning. He walks away, and the guy who's hired the Indian guy to do it, he goes, of course you will. You're an American. You can just sort out everything. You, you can just snap your fingers and it's done. And it doesn't happen. He can't do it. God is all about setting up our lives to show us we cannot do it. We need something outside of ourselves to help us. We need a divine work in our lives. We cannot do it. We need a source outside of ourselves. The Lord leads His people. Number two, the second event. Take a look at this. Take a look on the screen. The second event. People are trapped. They are caught. They are hemmed in. They are just, they've got the army behind them, the sea in front of them. They're surrounded by the mountains. They cannot get out. It's kind of like the devil in the deep blue sea. They are in trouble. They are struggling. They are hemmed in. They are trapped. An army is on the backside waiting to kill them. But listen, no matter what kind of cry, if it's a whine or whatever, they will be heard by God. And we see here that their faith is as thin as a snowflake in Port Orchard. It's there for a moment, but boy, it's gone quickly. Their faith is that thin and dissipates that quickly. Yesterday I was elated when I saw snowflakes coming down and then it was gone. Listen, their faith in God is the same. And many times our faith in God is the same. They are in trouble. They are trapped. But rule number three God hears His people. Do not forget that. Remember, God is in control. Sovereign foundations in Genesis, we talked about those things. Number two, God hears His people. We see this a couple times in Exodus. Go back to chapter 2, the end of that. Chapter 3, God hears His people. No matter what type of cry, the Bible is all about God answering His people with intervention we need divine intervention the people have no claim for this intervention why because let's take a look verse 10 
as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified. Listen, these are legitimate and real fears. But even if there is trouble and turmoil and the reality of fears, the true reality is God. Remember that. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us in the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Did we not say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve worship the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve worship the Egyptians than to die in the desert. You know what's interesting? We on this side of the story, because we know this story, know that you're not going to die. In fact, the enemy's going to die. So we can easily sit here and go, you foolish people, why are you complaining? Don't you know? Let me fast forward to this past week. How many of you struggled and just didn't have your dependence on the Lord saying, oh, Lord, why? Instead, you should be looking through God's view. Read the last book. We win because of Him. The enemy dies. Cast in forever and ever. And that's just the first day of forever and ever. We are so quick also to lose heart. Are we not? Rule number three. God always hears the cries of His people. Listen to me. God sees, He hears, and He also acts on His people's behalf. Exodus 14, 13, and 14. This passage is unbelievable. Sequence number three. The third event. Take a look on the screen. The third event. God fights. God fights for His people. So rule number four. Do not forget. He fights for His people. We have been so duped in America to get these bizarre images and pictures and comprehensions of God as this old Gandalf-looking man in a throne sitting up in heaven, throwing down flowers to his little children who obey him. We literally treat him like Santa Claus. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you've been good or bad. And that's how we picture God. Well, I've been bad today, so I, I should get a bunch of coal today. I'm sorry, Lord. Oh, I'm good today, so I better get some goodies. Did I win that lottery? Wow, how foolish. Again, most of our problems come from an incorrect view of God. God fights for His people. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read these two verses and we're going to take some time and look into this. Exodus 14, 13, and 14. 
Moses answered the people. Let, let me just pause here. What do you say to a complaining crowd? Before I read this, because you're just going to be just sucked into this, I, I want you to think about this. What do you say to a complaining crowd? Let's say you have a complaining, some of you maybe are managers or are a boss, or you have people that you have, have worked underneath you, and you know what it's like to deal with a couple people that complain, and you just kind of lay the law down and let them know the way it is. He's got not just a handful, he's got like two and a half million people, kind of what the estimation is. A lot of people, a lot of people, just thousands and thousands and thousands of people complaining. Oh, what are you doing? What do you say? Well, get over it. There is a teacher right there in the audience. Now, we are somewhat removed from battle and military theory today just because we're just somewhat removed from that, although we see it so quickly on the news. It just happens really quickly today. We don't understand commands to rally up some people. So what I've done is I have printed off a few what I call battlefield commands. This is the way we imagine what you should say to a crowd. The first few will be from some movies, of course. Here's one, a president speaking to a group of people. Aliens have taken over the world, and this president was a, was a pilot, a fighter, and he rallies up the troops, gets a couple guys. One guy's an old drunk crop airplane guy, and he says, less than an hour, our planes from here and around the world will launch the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Then he thinks about mankind. You know, that's an important word because we're all going to be killed by aliens. He says, we will fight for our freedom. Listen to the word fight. We will fight for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, persecution, but from annihilation. He's rallying up the troops. From this day on, the 4th of July will no longer be remembered as an American holiday, but it will be remembered for all mankind that this is our Independence Day. We will fight. We will not give out without a fight. Notice the words, we will fight. Or, Braveheart. I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men, and free you are. What will you do with your freedom? And he gets on his horse and is going back and forth. Years from now, will you give up and sit in your beds and say, if only I had one chance, one chance to go back and say to our enemies, you may take our lives, but you will never take our freedom. He's rallying up the troops. Or, in the Shakespearean, Henry V, they are outnumbered, six to one. The French are going to take them out. In the army, the English, they're complaining, and Henry stands up. The most Christ-like king portrayed in all of the Shakespearean things says, what? Give up? You wish for one man more? Why would you do that? If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. But to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. It says, those who don't have the stomach, let him depart. 
We'll put money in their purses. Get them out of here. We want those who are willing to fight. Then he says this, Tomorrow is St. Crispian's day, and he who outlives this day, will he strip his sleeve and show his scar and say, These wounds I had on St. Crispian's day. Old men forget. Everything is forgotten. But you'll remember because you fought in this battle. What feats you did that day. And your name will be aroused when St. Crispin's Day is mentioned. And we in it, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he who sheds his blood with me will be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day will gentle his condition. It's all about we will fight. But the last one I'll read is an actual one. What do you say to a group who's about to go into battle? Eisenhower sends us out right before D-Day. Sends a note, a letter, stuffed in different ways. Everyone gets this before they go invade France. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark on the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. But this is the year, 1944. The tide has turned. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to your duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than a full victory, and let us all beseech the almighty blessing of the almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Eisenhower. What does Moses say to rally up the troops? This is unbelievable. Let's take a look. Exodus 14, verse 13 and 14. Moses answers the people. Do not be afraid. Let me say that again. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. And 14 verse 14, get this in you, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You see, in all the other battlefield commands that I've just quoted you, from fictional movies to the reality of World War II, it's all about, you can do it, you should have courage, you've got the skills, we will win. Moses, he knows rule number four. God fights for his people. He is the one that will do it. Do not be afraid. Let's take a look at this little section at a time here. Do not be afraid. 
This is, um, the way it's written is this, do not, in this imperative, it's, it's a command, do not be afraid. It's not like, oh, let me, let me come with a big band-aid and say, oh, don't be afraid. Because there are times like that. There are times, especially when your children are hurt or whatever, oh, don't be afraid. This is, don't be afraid. It's almost like a smack on the face. Hey, wake up. What, don't be disillusioned by this, this, this army behind you. Again, here's this phrase. Don't let circumstances dictate how you worship. Smack on the face. He's kind of saying, wake up. Don't be afraid. Instead, let worship, let the knowledge of God dictate how you live right now in this circumstance. Don't be afraid. He kind of alerts them. Wake up. It's, it's, it's like a gentle rebuke. Don't be afraid. You foolish people. You have spiritual amnesia. Wake up. Don't be afraid. Look at this. Stand firm. Here's another imperative. Stand firm. Don't, and I love how Moses doesn't bargain with a murmuring people. I try that with my children. That doesn't work. Oh, they like to just kind of complain. And I try to get in there. and No. Here's the rule. Dad's in charge of the household, right? Yes, Dad. Takes, takes him a while to say that. Here is the rule. Go to bed now. What's rule number four? God fights for his people. At least someone knows the reality. He doesn't give in to their murmuring. And he says, stand firm. Don't go back and forth. Don't say, oh, we want to worship them. Oh, we'll worship God. Oh, we want to worship them. He's like, wake up, people. Stand firm. Quit going back and forth. Stand your ground and Him alone, God alone, He will fight for you. Please listen. Some of you are like that every day. You're like, okay, yes, Lord. Okay, man, I'll just trust my own things. Oh, I'll do this some. No. Stand firm. Stand your ground. Trust the Lord. Stand firm. Choose who you stand with. Stand your ground and wait. Not just wait, but see. I love that. Stand firm and you will see. His confidence is not in the circumstances around him. The sea, mountains, army, they have no weapons. His confidence is in God. Where is your confidence today? When circumstances don't line up the way you want. He knows rule number two. God is sovereign. God's in control. God hears our prayers. He hears our cries. Rule number three. Then rule number four. He will fight for us. And it's great. Look at verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. He commands this. And you will see the... What's this word? Deliverance? That's where we get this word. Have you heard this word? Yeshua? Deliverance. Whose name is Yeshua in the New Testament? Jesus. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that you will bring. Oh no, that the Lord will bring. He knows the Lord will do it. The Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. And now we get to the verse that you have to memorize. The verse that I pray that you just write down on cards and just plaster them all over your house, in your car, at your work, 
Exodus 14, 14. Get it in you. Memorize it. Seal it onto your soul. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. And here, this is seriously one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. The Lord will fight. He will rage war. He is the one that goes to battle. He is the one who does it. God is the one who fights for people's salvation. There is nothing you can do to do it. Not an ounce of lifting a finger can help you. This is such a great picture of salvation. They are helpless, harassed, like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 9. But He is the one that comes in to save them. He is the Deliverer, the Yeshua. He will save them. God is going to do it. He will fight. His people are the immediate object of God's love in action. Let me say this again. His people are the immediate action, the immediate action, the immediate purpose of His love. It's His people. He's all about saving His people. The rest of this verse, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now, this word still, it's not like you just stand there and go like this, fold your hands and go, okay, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. It's, it's not this, because take a look at verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying to me? Tell the people, tell the Israelites to move on. So the best translation isn't still. It's not still like put your hands in your pocket and just be still, freeze, freeze frame, don't move. It's this, the Lord will fight for you You do nothing. You don't have to move a finger, is what the NLT says. There's nothing you can do. You need only to be still. You cannot do it. But this doesn't fit military advice. Especially after all this, I could pull you all my military books and military theory and stuff I love to read. No, you you can't just sit there. You must do something. But in most military situations, you will die. But the enemy, listen to this. What God is saying, be still. The enemy has to get past me. Will the enemy get past him? No way. There's nothing we can do. The enemy can't see it. In fact, he's saying this. Don't look at the enemy. Look at me. Get your gaze upon me. You can do nothing but look at me. I will fight for you. And this will happen. But in the battle for salvation, it is easy to see that we are not to be soldiers. We are to be spectators. For salvation, we are not soldiers. We are spectators. We do cross our hands and wait He is the one that saves us. For salvation, we are to do nothing. Stand and have faith. Believe in His way of salvation. One of my professors says this. He says, Christianity is not about something we can do to save ourselves. It is all about what Jesus has done through the cross and the resurrection from the dead. 
we have nothing to contribute to God's great salvation. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. When it comes to salvation, there's nothing we are to do. God does the work. When our faith in Christ for salvation is there, then we put our firm feet down. Then we fight. Says in the Old in the New Testament, I have fought the good fight. There's an aspect of when your salvation is in the Lord, then we take on stuff and we fight. We use the word of God. You bet we fight. We defend the faith, but not in terms of salvation. When our salvation is secure, then we are called to proclaim and defend. But why does God do this? Because of Genesis 17. He is a God of promises. And He's a God of provision. He will provide His means, His way. Genesis 22, the, the, the knife is up in the air and says, Stop! Don't sacrifice your son. I have provided a means for you. We know that the Genesis passages are about promise, are kept. And we are to believe that today. The fourth event. Take a look on the screen. The fourth event is this. God wins. The battle, it's done. It's almost like there is no battle. God wins. Rule number five. God eliminates the enemy. God wins. Destruction of the enemy. Verse 14. Verse 13. Verse 20. He protects his own. Verse 14. Verse 19. Or, as it says in Scripture, the battle belongs to the Lord. No weapon that's fashioned against us shall stand. Why? The battle belongs to the Lord. He wins. And this great same message is the message of the New Testament. Turn to the great book of Romans. Romans. And I'll be honest, this is my favorite chapter. Romans chapter 8. I love how my father-in-law has written a commentary on Romans. It's about this thick. And his introduction to Romans 8 is this. I'm paraphrasing here. I don't memorize his words. But all of us love sports movies. Especially when there's an underdog. Hoosiers. Remember the Titans. He throws in Hoosiers because he's from Indiana. Um, Throws in all these movies. He says all these movies about where this underdog and they win at the end. And most of us have this hope in our hearts saying, oh, if only that was me. He says, in the Christian life, that should be us. In the Christian life, this is Romans chapter 8. God's salvation, He wins the battle. He provides, He fights, and He eliminates the enemy. Look at Romans 8, the first couple verses. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. You got that? For what the law was powerless to do, 
God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering for us. We are set free from the law of sin and death. We are now free in Christ. God did, take a look at this, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, a Passover lamb, for us. It's just unbelievable. And so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to to the Spirit. God fights and He eliminates the enemy, especially in the cross. Listen to this. The Old Testament is incomplete. The Old Testament is incomplete. It's completed in Christ. The Old Testament just points to all of this, especially chapter 14 is pointing to saying, look, I'm going to save you, I'm going to do it, and this is just a foreshadow of the ultimate deliverance found in Jesus. He is the one who fights and saves us. And we need to believe. We need to have faith. I encourage you, go back online, find the church's website, Listen to the two sermons I gave on Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. He provides the freedom for us. We must believe in, trust in, and commit to His way of salvation, not ours. All you have to do is accept this, believe and receive. Now the last event. But it's interesting, this fifth event is truly not the fifth event. It's the eternal event. It's the one that started before all events, and it's the one that is beyond the last event. And it's rule number one. God gets all the glory. Can you imagine if it was up to me to kind of be a part of saving myself and just be like, okay, I have an element of salvation here, then God doesn't get all the glory. He gets all the fame for His name. He gets all the glory. Rule number one, God gets all the glory. Take a look at Exodus 14, verse 4. Three important verses out of Exodus 14. Exodus 14, 4. Exodus 14, 14, and Exodus 14, 31. Exodus 14, verse 4. Take a look at this. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God is all about bringing glory to himself. What is at stake, listen to this, is not simply the freedom of His people, but what is at stake is His glory. And He uses the deliverance of His people and the destruction of the Egyptians as a vehicle for His glory. Verse 4, verse 17, verse 18, speak of His glory. Listen to this. His people are the immediate object of, of God's love and action. Yet, His glory is the ultimate object of God's love in action. Let me say that again. His glory is the ultimate object. It's not you. 
You think Christianity, you think life, you think freedom, church is about you. It's not about you. It's all about Him. His glory is the ultimate object of God's love in action. God loves and displays His love in action by saving so we would know Him and then worship. What's the most important event? Worship. This all leads to worship. You are saved, not so you can just be freed from hell and go to heaven as a ticket, go to heaven. No, it's all about knowing God. And then in knowing God, we are free to then worship Him. It's all about worship. Let's look at the last verse in chapter 14, which in two weeks we will get into heavily. Uh, let me go to 29, sorry, not the last verse. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. Exodus fourteen twenty nine, With a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord, not themselves, but the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. 31, the last verse. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and Moses, His servant. God is all about setting things up. He's in control. He's all about hearing the cries of His people. He's all about answering those cries, fighting for His people, and eliminating the enemy so that all glory, all praise would go to Him. So I have two things to end with. Very short here. Listen. Number one, God is the one who fights for your freedom and salvation. Turn to Him. Don't have spiritual amnesia, which would lead to spiritual suicide. Don't do it. Turn to Him. He is the deliverer. He is the one who saves His people. If you follow the rules and religious customs of the law, you will die. We are set free from that. God gave Christ. He was the sacrifice. He is your only way of salvation. Period. End of story. Trust Him. Number two is this. For those of you who have your trust in the Lord, always turn it to worship. Always remember the rules of engagement and military warfare God sets up. Trust Him. He fights for you. He fights for your children and your children's children. Pray earnestly that they would come to know Him. And this, all this, that they would see the power of God and this is not about going, oh God, oh great, we're free. Freedom is so that we would know Him, thus worship Him. Ends with this, and hopefully I always end with this, how could you not worship God with your whole life, every aspect you have, saying thanks be to God for this great salvation so rich and free. Let me pray.